the night. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, Batman Ranking Podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board. That's creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on? It has been a dog turd of a week, Matt. Th- this is a very long story that I'm, I'm not going to share completely here for everyone because it is very dumb. But I got my car repossessed this week. Oh. Yeah, it's uh, it's all cleared up now, all taken care of. But let me tell you, I this week I paid $700 for the privilege of having my car legally stolen. Uh, that was not fun. Not fun. Does not sound it. No. And uh, I finally got it back today. Uh, it's mine. Paying off the uh, assholes at the credit union. Can't come take it away now. Oh, I, I agree. Matt is shaking his fist and I too, I'm shaking, I'm shaking everything I got, including my wiener right there at the credit union in Tuscaloosa. But, 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 but I did have, I did have a wonderful friend of mine send me a wedding gift, a whole box full of comics, <laughs> including uh, Trinity, uh, some, um, Oh, hell, what was some other stuff in there? Uh, Suicide Squad? Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, A collection of stories, uh, short stories by Max Allen Collins. Isaac Asimov, I think, was in there. Yes, Isaac Asimov, Uh, A really fun collection. And then um, because this guy, I think, also knows that I proposed to uh, my now wife after seeing the Batman. Uh, I got a whole book of uh, Bat- the Batman art. See, you, you you knew exactly what that friend of yours was thinking. Exactly. Uh, Matt, it was lovely. Thank you so much. <laughs> of course. Mazel tov. We, uh, we very much appreciated it. And it was a bright spot in this dog turd of a week. Everything I'm... has been behind because of that fucking car. I can imagine. I am glad I could be of service. The only bit of banter I have this week is that I, while doing my best to not give in to the corporate shilling of Amazon.com and Prime Day, did notice one thing that I had to buy. Oh? The complete Batman the Animated Series on the HD restored Blu-ray for 25 bucks. Oh, I paid much more than that when I got it. And I feel bad now. Yeah, that was like, I saw it. It was like, I'd been waiting for a deal on it since I have it in other formats. I was like, oh, okay. No, no, no. This, this I need to own. I need to own Uh, this just in time for the 30th anniversary in a month and change. Well, remember, first of all, the, uh, the streaming formats can always go away. I remember when I could just fire up Netflix and watch Dragnet. Can't do that anymore. So physical media, I will swear by it up and down. I I stand firmly in agreement. I just, I still have my DVDs, which are nice, but they're not as crisp as these Blu-rays. Oh, oh, no, no. DVD is like trying to watch a picture in a rainstorm two houses away now. It's, it's, no, you can't go back, Matt. You can't go back. No, no. And there, there's some things that I'm like. Yeah, I'll keep the DVD. There's something I'll watch on occasion. But Batman the Animated Series, I will rewatch over and over. I need the nicest format I can get on that show. I think I, too, groveled under the weight of Prime Day. And I think I got a Hitchcock collection on 4K. Mm-hmm. 
Psycho and Rear Window and uh, maybe a, the Birds. Ooh, so so like the real classics there. Yeah, Very I nice. also thought about the Godfather, but I didn't pull the trigger on that one. And I got I got Batman the animated series and the complete Orphan Black, which is one of Amber's favorite shows. And we've been oh, talking about doing nice. a rewatch, and it was like, well, if I can get the entire series for thirty-five bucks on Blu-ray, hey, I wasn't good. You you weren't going to do anything better with that thirty-five dollars. No, more random stuff that I would get just as much use out of. So now I got an entire series. See, folks, this is what happens when you back us on Patreon. We we have more disposable income. We can buy more shit to just occupy our time. And we appreciate it. We really do. So uh, remember, if you're listening to this and you don't back us on Patreon, you're a freeloader. And for those who are backing us on Patreon, stay tuned because those Blu-rays of Batman the Animated Series are going to come in very handy in September for the 30th anniversary Patreon bonus episode. Ooh. Subscribe to Patreon to find out what episodes we will be talking about. If you don't subscribe, it's the ones that you like the best. But we, we do have an actual episode tonight, so we should probably get on with that, because this week we're heading off into the world of tomorrow, oh, deep into the future. Patreon backer Dan Grote request came along, and it has been received, and so we are reading three stories of Batman in the future. First story of the night is the story that Dan specifically requested. This is Batman Digital Justice. This is an original graphic novel written by Pepe Moreno and Doug Murray with art and colors by Moreno, letters by Typeset, edited by Denny O'Neill and Dan Raspler. Uh, the cover date is April of 1990. In this computer art graphic novel, the Gotham of the future is being subverted by a digital dictator and the grandson of Jim Gordon must embrace the legacy of Batman to stop it. I would like to also credit the uh, the computer here from the inside uh, cover. A Macintosh 2 system, 8-bit, 32-bit color board, system palette, of, uh, system palette of 16 million possible colors, 8 megabytes of RAM, a removable 45-megabyte hard drive, and a 19-inch Triniton monitor. Can you imagine... we can get that on you know this little boxy portable hard drive has more power than that amazing we live in a, a time of wonders and unfortunately as human beings don't entirely know how to do anything good with that but still or at least not as much as we probably should but nonetheless this was sort of the first of its kind, a fully computer-generated graphic novel. It's wild. Oh, it's it's very wild. If I had to describe the art here, and as Matt and I have talked, it's incredibly ironic that this book, Digital Justice, computer-generated art, is not available digitally. <laughs> I love it. So so we're both... Uh, I, I've got the, the hardcover picture book collection oh, we, we're working for the same thing mine looks a bit sun faded compared to yours but yeah it's 
It's a wild concept, a big swing for 1990. The notes for the book cover says it took a year to put together. And I feel so much for you people. Now, you know, anybody could do this on, you know, the the slowest, cheapest computer. But the art, if I had to, to, to like describe it for somebody who hasn't seen it, and I feel horribly dated in saying this, the characters here are basically 8-bit characters. It's... If you could imagine the Doom guy as being a protagonist in a comic book, like the visual representation of the Doom guy or, you know, uh, BJ Blazkowicz from Wolfenstein, like it's that 8-bit rendering, pixelated. Somebody could do this now and it would look kitsch and novel and cute, but they were, wow, again, this is this was the state of the art. This is, to quote you, I believe, well, uh, another monkey astronaut book. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I give this book a lot of credit for trying to do what it's doing and for being in places oddly prescient. There is some stuff in here that, I mean, is granted not new, but you get a thing here with one of these sort of lords of Gotham, this cabal that is running things, the media man who is altering news footage to suit his purposes. And it's like, oh boy, that's some Newsmax own shit right there. That is some, some serious fake news. Oh yeah. And the idea of uh, using a computer virus to crash Wall Street to basically engage in cyber warfare. This book is weird and wild, but it's not entirely wrong about where we are today. There's not too much. There's a couple of mentions of the return of neo-Nazis, of the Nazi party stepping back up. There, yeah. A real cult of celebrity sort of thing with the character of Gata, who we'll get back to, which is, granted, that's also kind of 90s because there's definitely a Madonna vibe there too. But there's also a real, even though there isn't social media as we know it in the book, you get a kind of social media celebrity vibe from that character. Did you ever see the little short film? I always forget the name of it. It's Epic 2012 or something like that. It was it was put together by these like these futurists slash thinkers and it predicted a merger or it didn't necessarily predict it, but it kind of speculated, well, gee, what would happen if Google and Amazon merged and we were left with the Google's on of the future? And it was done right before Facebook took off. So like Friendster is like figures very prominently in this in this video. But it talks about social media and it talks about Google's social media output. As for the very best, it is more knowledge than humans have ever had at their fingertips. For those who carefully curate their media sphere, it is in-depth and fascinating and a window to the world. But for most people, it's shallow, vapid, and basically a disgrace. So it wasn't hard to really see where we were going. Yeah, but I but I give I give all the credit to people who did. I want to be be sad, but I mean I am sad. I mean I want to be shocked, but I'm not. Well, just think of it, Matt. It's all downhill from here. Let's be frank. I mean, 
Bradbury predicted a lot of this with Fahrenheit 451. It, and that was even longer ago. But maybe the gatekeepers of the 20th century weren't the worst thing. Hmm. Back to this, this actual book. One of the other books tonight speaks in a very similar language to this book. Not, you know, actual speech, but in their themes and how they play off some similar beats. But this one is very 90s futurist. The, the fashions, there's a little bit of the, the net speak, a little bit of that not quite clockwork orange, completely unintelligible language, but probably closer to something like Blade Runner, where there's just some peppered in things that you have to sort of piece together. But at no point is it a book you get lost in trying to understand what the characters are saying, which is easy to do when you're doing that futurist language. Oh, isn't it though? Very reminiscent of uh, you talking about like the 90s future aesthetic, uh, very reminiscent of Demolition Man. Yes. I will say, despite Batman being in the title, we don't really get any Batman until what, about halfway into the book? It is at least after the first issue. I know yeah, I mean, that much. Yeah, I mean, d- sort of looking at the book and putting my finger in where. Batman shows up it looks like it's not quite the halfway point but it's close it's real close to halfway through I mean that first half is there and it really does establish the world it spends its time getting you to understand the world getting you to know our protagonist our new Batman of the future who is James Gordon the second third Jim's grandson. Jim's grandson, uh, important in uh, two books tonight. Yes. Who are also both named Jim Gordon. Well, you want to keep things consistent, right? You don't want like Sam Gordon, you know, running things. Okay. Jeffrey Gordon. Then he would be just racing. (laughs) (laughs) Turn left, Commissioner. Uh, I always turn left. I don't know what y'all talking about. You've got AI robots that are not, they're supposed to be AI, but it seems more like something which you don't know, at least the beginning, has subverted them. And by the end, you get a story that's basically digital Batman versus digital Joker. And that digital Joker is a weird ass design. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a weird turn there at the end where the programs merged and they approached infinity and Jim Gordon's body dissolved into the ether, but then it came back. That was, that was some wild stuff. Again, that, that really streams to me that very nineties, late 80s, early 90s, cyberpunk sort of thing that was so much a part of that particular aesthetic. I mean, Neuromancer was 1984. And so that was the beginning of all of this. So we're a few years into that cyberpunk revolution. Lawnmower Man? Yep, that would have been somewhere around here. But for all of its trappings in that, it's 
a pretty universal story where you've got this cabal, one of whom runs the police, one of whom runs crime, and one of whom runs the media, and the mayor, who are all working together to keep the city within their power. And they all serve this sort of the quote unquote Joker virus, this Joker AI that the Joker left behind before he died. At least we assume he died. I mean, it's been long enough and Bruce is long dead. So my assumption is the Joker is as well. But I don't know if they ever go into any detail about what happened to the Joker after he was released from jail and released this virus. Meanwhile, you've got still Gordon as the last good cop, this Sergeant Gordon. And you've got him who adopt or not quite adopted, but sort of watching out for these two orphan kids who are orphan teens, one of whom becomes Robin and one of whom, I don't entirely know why the sister needed to be there. She appeared in one scene. It's just kind of like, I don't know why we needed the second kid and know they that they existed because they didn't really serve any story purpose and you have gata the uh pop star who i mean if you know your spanish you you could tell right out of the gate who that was going to be who becomes our new Catwoman, and who there's a really weird twist at the very end of the book about who this character is and i'm like i don't think that that was foreshadowed anywhere that was just sort of out of left field it's like oh by the way you're a clone i I, I didn't didn't see that coming i don't think that was anywhere but it's a fairly straightforward story in that you know you've got this cabal you've got them manipulating the system manipulating the computers you've got gordon who's trying to stop them and then when he can't and his partner is killed you've got him taking up the mantle of batman to fight against the system and in the end it becomes this whole thing about humanity and machines and what's the proper balance between the two it's certainly saying something or it's trying to say something more than a lot of books we've read have tried to say i'll absolutely agree and then especially with that that last idea of are we relying too much on the machines are we slaves to the machines i'm thinking about not all robots i just read that for another column i work on with uh, ian gregory and mark russell writes that he's very preoccupied with are we servants yeah, he uses it to speak to, to white privilege. But anyway, I wonder if there might could have been something leaning a bit harder into that, especially considering that this was the, the artwork was all digitally done. Like what what does what does that whole idea mean of you know being too reliant on machines and computers when you're doing your art for your comic book on a computer? Like where is the humanity in this art process? Uh, and I just think that they could have maybe somehow explored that a little more. But I guess they do just a little bit when they when they bring in those like art scenes of of I guess was that the was that the Joker AI showing off what it yes. could do? And you've also got the the janky Alfred bot, and I'm not entirely sure what was specifically going on there with having this old Alfred robot. This 
book is at its best when it's doing sweeping action and costumes and such because this animation or not animation but the art it's definitely at a point where human faces are not its strong suit uh no no the, the especially the mouths and the way they're held are at times pretty darn creepy and yeah. they're not necessarily uh, supposed to be, but they are. Yeah, we don't remember Doom Guy for his rugged good looks. There's a lot of like stylistic choices in here that I'm not entirely sure why. For instance, the I think it's the mob boss. Yes, the mob lord is in this kabuki mask and makeup. There isn't any real story reason for that. Well, the Japanese are obviously part of the future and into the tech, so he must be Yakuza, question mark. I mean, I, I will definitely say I liked this book. Like, while I don't think it's a direct homage, there's a moment where the Batman AI that Bruce left behind confronts this cabal. Mark me well, I am the end of all things for you the face of your judge and jury, the last face you will ever see in this world, the face of justice, true justice, digital, digital justice. justice. Which is, it's just, is that's his, from this moment on, none of you are safe. Batman, your one moment. You have gotten fat off of Gotham's Bitcoin. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel, of all the characters, the one that makes me the most uncomfortable is Gata. Because it's kind of like, I don't like the sort of vapid, fame-hungry character. I I think there's something about her that's a little flat and one-dimensional. And that she comes around because Bat Gordon, you know, kisses her. That's very of its time. There was one section in here that I thought may have been riffing on Judge Dredd. That line, I am the law. Oh, yeah. From uh, the, what was it, the lawman? Yeah, and, and when you're doing future stuff, I mean, Dread is one of the touchstones in comics. Absolutely. If uh, if it wasn't a Judge Dread reference, it's a bit on the nose. And, I mean, there's direct references to bread and circuses, which, I mean, I think people have been saying about American culture for 20 plus years now, pretty regularly. So there's a lot here that is now looked at as a bit on the nose if, if this were written today it would be like okay you know pull back we we, we get what you're saying here america would never elect a nazi president come on okay on that note you got anything else uh i don't so that means it's time but batman digital justice on the big board okay we are currently at 138 stories on the big board uh number one is batman year one from batman volume one number 404 to 407 number 25 is cheer from batman urban legends numbers one to six number 50 is blood secrets from detective comics annual number two coming in at 69 nice it's superman annual number three armageddon 2001 at number 75 is catwoman when in rome down at 100 is a death in the family 
at 125 is Scarecrow from Batman Volume 1, 523 to 524. And all the way down at the bottom is and remains Batman White Knight. So I think in our time since we first started this show, we've come to appreciate these monkey astronaut books more. Or Holy Terror. Yeah, exactly. I feel like this is going to get a considerably higher showing than Holy Terror because we now appreciate something this wild and experimental. So what's the absolute ceiling on this from your perspective? Well, it's fun. It's not a top half book. It's not that significant. It's not something that I want to go back and reread over and over again. It's something I will probably reread at some point because it's novel, but it's not knock me out. And, you know, I, I didn't close this. and was like, I need to read this again right now. So uh, right in the middle tonight and tonight only is 69. <laughs> so I don't think it, it, I don't think it's quite there. Um. I would sooner go back and reread down at 77, speaking of Batman Judge Dredd. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I will agree with that. And another wild swing that I think in the long run works better is uh, Clown at Midnight at 84. Yep. I would agree with that. And, and you know me, I find it hard to put, I would find it hard to put this above at least 85 with Blades. <laughs> <laughs> I have accepted that Blades is going to be down there. But I, I f- would feel bad. I would feel bad if we, uh, if we put this above 92, which is uh, Detective Comics 824 by Paul Dini, uh, which I have titled, Why Won't Paris Hilton Fuck Me? <laughs> I don't know what the actual title is, but that's, that's what it means. Night um, of the Penguin. Yeah. We got Overdrive at 91. And after this, we've got stuff like Death Cast the Deciding Vote, Mad Men Across the Water, A True Batman Story at 97. Like, I would feel pretty good putting this high 80s, low 90s. Yeah. I'm leaning towards 96. The current 96 is Catwoman Volume 1, Her Sister's Keeper which is three strong issues. And then that final issue that's sort of like, this feels like an entire arc that we had to cram into one issue and is singularly grimdark. That would be putting this below 824, but above a true Batman story, which I feel is a good compromise for my growing dislike of Paul Dini. So so we, we are... We're thinking that we're thinking new 96. Uh, yeah, I could do the new 96 or the new 97. I, I think I would put it above her sister's keeper. So new 96. All right. Works for me because this at least remains consistent in tone throughout that. It does sail high sail. True monkey astronaut. As we said, one of the other stories speaks very closely to this, but we're going to do that one last to give us some space in between the two for thought and such. So our second story is Grounded. This is Batman Beyond, Volume 2, Number 1. The writer is Hilary J. Bader. 
pencils by Craig Rousseau, inks by Rob Lee, colors by Lee Lawfridge, letters by Tim Harkins, and edited by Darren Vincenzo and Joseph Illich. Cover day is November of 1999. Bruce Wayne dons the cape and cowl again to stop an out-of-control Terry McGinnis, but not everything is as it seems. This is the first issue of the animated series tie-in Batman Beyond ongoing. There was a six-issue miniseries that was the first Batman Beyond animated tie-in series that came out also in 1999, earlier, that started out with a two-issue adaptation of the pilot and then did four original stories. And this is the first issue of the ongoing. Hilary Bader, who wrote this, and I believe wrote a good chunk of this series, was a writer for not just Batman Beyond, but a lot of the DCAU and was a big writer for syndicated sci-fi and fantasy shows of the 90s, uh, various Star Treks, the Hercules Xenoverse. Uh, she wrote for a bunch of those shows and sadly passed at a fairly young age of breast cancer back in 02. Oh, yeah, sad. Yeah, but she has a fascinating IMDb. So it's cool to see her writing comics and it's why while will has not really watched much or any batman beyond at this point this very much feels a piece with the show since the writer was one of the writers on the cartoon and correct me if i'm wrong but we're doing that for our next patreon episode yes this month's the july patreon bonus episode will be some batman beyond stories or episodes and again if you're not a subscriber I really hope you like Batman Beyond. So you feel truly that you're missing out and you feel compelled to subscribe. $5 a month. One less cup of coffee. (laughs) This is a one-off animated series style story. We've read plenty of these at this point set in the Batman the Animated Series New Batman Adventures time frame. And so this is our first step into the Batman Beyond time with this. And I think it's a pretty good showing for this book. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an accessible story uh, for anybody who's not deeply in the Batman Beyond universe, like like this guy, this guy right here. I had some kind of quibbles in some of the narrative spots, like, I didn't so much like the in media res opening and then like jumping back from that and then moving forward. Some of these spots where uh, specifically a page eight where Bruce is monitoring what Terry is supposedly doing from the Batcave. I can't tell what the hell is going on visually. Like I see some, some bad shenanigans, but I'm like, is that a, is that a train car? Is that a van? Is that a building? Like, I can't, I can't understand what's happening. And it just, it just kind of like breaks my immersion in the storytelling. So I had a couple of hiccups like that, but I think introducing in this, in this world of, well, you've got a younger Batman and he's living at home and, uh, you know, he's having these kind of problems with his mom like all of that stuff is just kind of relatable and bruce has got to kind of manage that he's an elder statesman and he's far past the point where he should be out in the field and yet if he absolutely has to he'll go back out there i like that so there were there were some nice beats in the story 
you get you see, you meet you see Mary Terry's mom you see his brother Matt uh, you don't get the full supporting cast we don't see Terry's girlfriend Dana here we don't see uh, Commissioner Barbara Gordon both of those characters are regulars in the series but you get a pretty safe assortment of characters and you see Ace you see Ace the Great Dane who hangs out with Bruce and you get one of the major rogues of the series, Spellbinder, who is the villain here, who was a you know, regular Batman rogue in the comics and who they never used in regular Batman in the animated series. So they created Spellbinder for Batman Beyond, which was a neat choice because with the, the high tech and the mesmerism, it works in that future setting particularly well. My quibble with the structure was also that I'm not sure if it was intentional or not, but when you get Bruce's delusion of Terry on a rampage and then it cuts back to Terry really still being at home, there's no transitional narrative bubble or anything. No, meanwhile, it's just suddenly, I didn't believe there was. It was just suddenly you're with Terry in his room. And I felt like there could have been some narrative point to be like and now we're somewhere else yeah i i agree and i was still confused and agitated from that page two pages earlier if i had been less confused i probably would have picked up on that same point i don't know sometimes i just like sometimes i take these things as they're presented to me and sometimes i'm just like ah what huh And I wonder if this is Bader being more used to writing for animation and thus didn't give enough to Craig Rousseau, the artist who was doing a lot of work at this point. He did a long run on Impulse. He still works as far as I know. I I remember seeing creator-owned work from him not that long ago so he obviously has a fairly strong visual storytelling style so i i wonder if this was just a writer who was finding their legs as a comic book writer and didn't entirely give the artist everything that it was a full it was done full script and there weren't the proper transitions in the full script or what but it's not an unreadable comic it's not completely what the hell is going on here throughout all of it but there's there's another bit towards the end during terry's final fight with spellbinder and spellbinders whammied uh victims where again there's a little bit of a a lost moment there where i felt like wait we're, we're not seeing something we're missing some panels that bridge some of this action this also references one of the seminal Batman Beyond stories, one that we will be watching for this bonus episode, and one that was also referenced in the Batman Beyond Neo Year miniseries that's coming out from DC right now, uh, the episode Shriek, where Bruce makes clear to Terry that in his head he still thinks of himself as Batman because Spellbinder broadcast the subliminal message that was sent to Batman and it affected both Bruce and Terry because Bruce still thinks of himself as Batman, even though he doesn't wear the costume anymore. I also found it quaint that Terry's brother, Matt is using 
what looks like a Polaroid camera. <laughs> this is clearly 1999. We weren't thinking that we would all be carrying cameras around in our pockets attached to a device that does everything else for us. Oh, but you know, every single show or movie depicting the future, you had a video chat. It took us a lot longer to get to than phones. But uh, certainly everybody has it now. Uh, but I remember yeah. Gremlins 2 vividly having that uh, uh, like video chat scenes back to the future too. Absolutely. With, with a fax attached to it. <laughs> well, the fax just made it official. There is one very smart transition when Bruce starts going into his whammied state. The clock shows 6 p.m. And then it suddenly jumps to 2 a.m. And so it seems like all this time has passed and you can believe it. You've, you're given this visual clue that is in fact all in Bruce's head. But for something that's there as a hint, it's actually kind of neat that you realize on a reread that, oh, no time really did pass. That's just Bruce going to this hypnotic suggestion and feeling like eight hours have passed. That would make more sense for, well, his mom here is the delusion. It would have been weird for her to be, I guess, up and the kid to be awake at two in the morning. It's all in Bruce's head. I like the the button on the end of this story. It's, It's a very animated series, a very Batman Beyond sort of ending that often ends on a, a clever little moment where Bruce, you know, is able to get Terry ungrounded by saying he saved his life, but he can still work, but he gets, instead of being grounded for two weeks with not able to work at all, he's grounded for four weeks, but he can still go to work and no TV. It reminds me of that. The driest, funniest bit of the animated series, the laughing Joker barge episode uh alfred breaks that priceless vase and bruce just says oh you can just work it off i'll take it out of your paycheck (laughs) yeah your salary yeah no the animated series did a great job with ending episodes on little buttons like that and there's there's one in an episode of batman beyond where you first meet the royal flush gang and terry has a sort of will they won't they with 10 who's a young woman his age. And in the end, he's, you know, saying something to Bruce about how, you know, I bet you would have never fallen for a a supervillain. And it just ends with, let me tell you a story about a woman named Selena Kyle. You don't get the whole Catwoman exposition, but you just get that line. It's like, that's all you need because we all know the story. Tom King would have done 73 issues after that. (laughs) But no, all you need is, let me tell you about Selena Kyle. Again, with these animated series one shots, there's not a lot, but they're not, these were mostly designed to be self-contained, to be easily accessible. So there isn't a ton for us to dig our teeth into. And sometimes some of them do, and we haven't gotten to any of those yet, but this one, this one's just sort of fun and there. And I thought it was a good choice. It was one of the ones that stuck out in my head because you also get Bruce in the costume, which doesn't happen that often in batman beyond it's in the first episode there's one other and there's flashbacks in the return of the joker but he's not wearing the costume in the present that's one we're gonna have to do sometime 
We're going to have to do Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, which is possibly the darkest story set in that DC animated universe, in the main universe. Because, oh boy. Ooh, sounds good. It is. Uh, and we, we got to do Mask of the Phantasm for one of these here episodes. Oh, do we ever? Do we ever? Because uh, I, have, I have not seen that. Oh. Uh, one, one quick question about old Batman's costume. I assume the face shield is some kind of oxygen system? Question mark? I, I'd assume, yeah. Old man Bruce needs, uh, needs all the help he can get. The one time he donned the the suit Terry is wearing, the you know heightened power suit, it gave him a heart attack. So oh, his poor Bruce is not great at this point. So yeah, I would assume that that's that was there just in case. Also, you see the flying Batmobile in this story. It is pretty similar to the flying Batmobile vehicle in Digital Justice. They have a pretty similar sort of vibe. I don't think it's intentional, but I think there's you know only so many flying car designs. And when you're adding in the dark stealth tech, they're going to wind up having a similar look to them. And you just can't do the Batwing. Yeah. Oh, Batwing, old and boring. Been there, done that. Uh, I think that's about it. That means it's time to put Batman Beyond Volume 2 number one on the big board. This is innocuous. Yeah. I don't think there's anything terrible about it. I don't think there's anything great about it. I think it probably falls somewhere in the mid one zeros, which where a lot of stories like that are. Luther, You're Driving Me Sane, Little Red Book, Joker's Double Jeopardy, Last Chance. They're all very much Batman stories. They're not offensive, but they're not overly memorable either. Yeah, we got Batman Adventures number nine at 103. We got Batman Adventures annual number two at 112. Of course, we got Mad Love way, 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 way up at, right. um, I forget where we put it. Somewhere, in, it's somewhere in the 30s, I, somewhere in the 20s, I believe. Uh, 24, 24. Anything else from uh, the universe? Batman Adventures Annual 1, which is at 40, going straight. Ah, yeah. Definitely not going to be up there. No, no. Um, it, it's more down with that the lower echelon of stories from that universe. I do feel comfortable putting it somewhere between Adventures number 9 and Annual number 2. So I, I think you're right. Somewhere in the... 100s i would put it above 107 above bouncing baby boy i think below haunted at 105 yeah so i think it's either our new 106 or our new 107 the question is does it go above or below joker's double jeopardy the one where two-face is broken out of arkham and joker tries to stop him to just prove that he's a better crook than Two-Face. You know what? I think that's better because these are both stories that have, you know, cute buttons at the end. But I like the one in that where it turns out, yeah, Harvey, that guy broke you out of jail to steal a bunch of fakes to begin with because he'd already committed the crime and you were just being, you're a dupe and being double-crossed. 
is a cuter button than the uh, no TV bit in this one. <laughs> Two Fates gets double cross. Yeah, I like that. Uh, so yeah, our new 107. Also, good luck trying to find any place to start reading Batman Beyond. These volumes out there are confusing as hell. Yeah, if you didn't read them initially and know where to go, Infinite and I assume Comicsology don't make it easy. Especially the new Comicsology, motherfuckers. <laughs> Still haven't fixed that, have they? No, you, you. First of all, you have to start in their Comicsology page. Like you can't, you can't get like three comics deep and then decide to do a search. Are you going to just wind up back in the Amazon jungle? You have to like navigate back to the Comicsology portal every time, and then still. Sometimes it'll fuck up and give you search results from just like print books or merchandise or any other random thing. It's a miserable experience. Thanks, Jeff. Our final story of the night is Batman Year 100. This is Batman Year 100, numbers one through four, written and drawn by Paul Pope, with colors by Jose Villarubia, Letters by Jared K. Fletcher and John Workman and edited by Bob Shrek, Nachi Castro, and Brandon Montclair. Cover dates are April to July of 2006. In a police state future, the only person who stands against that state is the Batman of Gotham. Caught in the middle of a conspiracy, can Batman clear his name and find out what is worth the government killing and framing him for? I'll give my dumber summary. What if Dark Knight Returns and Digital Justice had a baby yeah <laughs> there's a lot of that there's also the f- the opening of the first issue is absolutely a year one riff that is a riff on issue three of year one with batman in the building with the swat team coming after him and him having to fight his way out of the building oh and there's definitely a lot of like meta commentary and references to batman history too when you see batman's history in this world which starts in 1939 there's absolutely like the stories it happens in pseudo real time so in the 60s you've got batman 66 riffs in the 80s you've got dark knight riffs this is absolutely a a, a batman that had put on weight yes this is referencing every bit of batman history that pope could squeeze in it is an Elseworlds, even though we were at the point where Elseworlds wasn't a brand anymore. This absolutely would have worked with that classic Elseworlds brand on. As a core concept, I really like the idea of Batman having passed back into legend. Yes. Like that, that, that really speaks to me as somebody who is... I don't know, kind of interested in pseudo history and the kind of the stories we tell themselves. And if you tell a legend long enough, like people start to believe it's history. Like I, I, I have to admit that I was, I was 36 years old before I learned that King Arthur is not based in reality. That is 100% legend and fiction. Yeah. I mean, there, there was, there was probably an Arturius that's about as close to that as you get. And so you could imagine like people, I don't know, we'll say a thousand years from now, questioning whether Harry Potter may have actually existed. So 
I don't know, characters passing into legend, legends being real, like just fun concepts to play around with. Oh, this is a really stylish book with some interesting stuff to say about that. The actual plot, the conspiracy and everything is kind of cookie cutter. Yeah. But I think a lot of this was Pope trying to just let me draw a bunch of cool stuff. I mean, you've got issue three is nearly entirely a Batman infiltrating and escaping a government building issue. Yeah, because he's got to get a blood sample. It's there because Paul Pope wants to do something cool. Yeah. And I, I don't think that that is in itself necessarily bad. No, because he does some cool shit. Oh, yeah. But every, almost everything here, with the exception of Jim Gordon's grandson, Jim Gordon, every other character in this book feels a little bit underbaked. Even the Batman himself. Yeah. And by the end, you don't really know what is going on with that. And I guess that's intentional. I mean, it's Bruce. Is he immortal? Is he a clone? Is he jumping into Lazarus pits? It doesn't matter for the story, I guess, because he is a legend. But to kind of established that yes this is still bruce wayne 100 years after he debuted as batman in 1939 it leaves you with more questions than answers obviously yeah and i think as a reader you can fill in some of those gaps you can imagine a story you can imagine uh your own preferred reality like like you said is it is it clones is it uh, a line of bruce's wayne like I don't know. I, I think the story does absolutely work, but I mean, in many ways, like uh, like One Dark Night, it's just an artist just just doing some cool shit. This reminds me a lot of Jeff Darrow's work. It's not the same in terms of like this hyper stylized, almost nonsensical violence fueling just weird stuff you can put in a book like there's no there's no fighting a kangaroo with you know like a scorpion or something like that it's not anything that bizarre but everything is stretched in weird proportions and lines are just kind of out there and got a federal police force and what looks like hockey uniforms there's just some weird shit going on here and it just looks cool Oh, yeah. Paul Pope is a great artist. He did, I believe, one of those issues, one of the other issues of Solo, the book we did, the one Tim Sale issue of. And so DC clearly was like, you do you, Paul Pope, and we will publish you drawing cool stuff. And he he did that. This is one to read for the visuals. The villains here are very much cookie cutter, boring, straight out of central casting from the X-Files government men. There's, uh, you know, rough and tumble sort of field agent, uh, bargain basement Professor Xavier as a psychic and a suit. And none of them have any real personality other than get that Batman. 
Yeah, uh, Miller certainly had things to say about Reagan in Dark Knight Returns. There is none of that here. There's no good, like, what do I think about the government? Like, there's this all this drama about federal police being in Gotham. And I think all we're supposed to think about it is that it's, you know, jurisdictional overreach. That, you know, Gordon is angry that the feds are pulling all the strings in his turf. And sure enough, the feds are also behind the world killing virus, question mark, for reasons. But there again, there's nothing... No point observed about government and police power and any of that stuff. It's all very surface. Yeah. It's all very, these guys are bad. They are bad because they are a surveillance state. They are bad because they are impinging upon the universal rights of people. There's no nuance to that. I mean, it doesn't need to be nuanced when we're talking about the government being evil. But we need a reason for them to be that way other than wahaha, we're evil. Yeah. Uh, when did this book come out again? 06. 06. So we're um, in the heart of the Bush era. We're in Patriot Act. Yeah, yeah, you had plenty of good shit to say about that. Have you seen uh, the most recent Bond film, No Time to Die yet? Of course. It took me some time, but uh, I went to see that in... uh, Yeah, yeah, I saw that in theaters. Because it's the the virus here is the same virus as there, or at least similar, the genetically tailored virus that can strike whoever you program it to. All right. Quick, 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 no time to die. Spoilers. Fast forward a good 20 seconds or 30 seconds, or maybe 10 minutes, however long we talk about this. Man, talk about overwriting, right? If you wanted Bond to die, if you wanted to give him a good death, I I, I 100% support that. But just have him just diffusing a bomb. Like you don't have to give him this extra thought of, you know, if he makes it out alive, he can never touch his loved ones or something like that was that was too much. I think that movie was about one action scene and two exposition scenes too long. Take your pick which ones you wanted to remove. I could have used more stories set in this world just because there's so much groundwork laid and you don't get enough out of the book to... I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. We either needed more with a Batman's supporting cast with the new Robin, the new Oracle... And the new Alfred slash Leslie Tompkins, who we, we get who they are, but we get who they are based on what those characters are riffing on. We don't really get to know them as characters. And I would have liked either more time with them or we had to trim some of them out to give some of the other stuff time to breathe. This is another one of these books that we've had a few of that it's like either this needed to be shorter or longer. Yeah, this does op- occupy a weird middle space, especially as how some of those characters might relate to each other. The Tompkins slash Alfred uh, Gordon's daughter, question mark? I think they're co-workers. The Oracle is the Doc's daughter and Gordon and the doctor seem, they clearly know each other. 
And I thought that they were co-workers and there might have even been a little bit of a, you know, flirtation there at some point or another. But it's it's some close relationship because, you know, at some point Batman uses her phone to contact Gordon and he's like, he wants you to know that it's you or, or, or whatever like machinations is going on in that particular scene, whatever it is, it's a close relationship. And you don't get, it's not clear why he, he dresses her by her first name at the beginning. He's calling her doc by the end. It's Chris. He's very much established that they have some kind of relationship by the end. There's some name drops of things that I'm like, okay, did I miss something in here? And sometimes the the different squads of federal police and Gotham feds have different names. There's Panthers and there's Wolfmen. And it was not easy to tell which group was which. I wish the armors had been a little more distinct. And the, the book goes on forever without uh, explaining what FPC is. Yeah. We found that out at the end of issue three. They keep saying it over and over again, but nowhere is it spelled out until the Federal Police Commission? No, it wasn't Commission. Core? Core. Federal Police Corps. Yeah. And it was just like, you got that at the end of issue three after this has been said over and over and over again. It feels like Pope just, you know, he had this story to tell and he would just kind of drop in things. This is damning with faint praise and it is not meant to be a slight against Paul Pope, who is a better creator than what I'm about to say here. Oh no. This is a better version of some of the kind of Sean Gordon Murphy shit that we get where he has all these ideas and he keeps kind of cramming them in. Only Paul Pope's ideas aren't terrible. And he is a much, much, much better artist. Yes, that too. Like, again, this, this is the thing that gets me with Murphy. Like, his artwork isn't great. His writing is terrible. And yet, man still gets to make books. You know, say what you will about the story here. The artwork is great. The colors are so vivid and just the weirdness of this all. The story, and the story isn't bad. It just feels like the story needed to either be focused or given more room to breathe. This just was not the right amount of time for this story. Yeah, I not to, not to shit on artist writers as like a class, but you know, we've had some where like Sean Ward Murphy, they're not good writers at all. What's something I feel like we've read where the writing was just excellent. Maybe oh. sales solo mask. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. This is somewhere in kind of the middle. Like the art is very strong, but the writing is not, you know, it's not superlative. It's not something you're going to write home about. It's not the, the sausage dog I had after our pub run tonight, which was grilled perfectly topped with collard greens and bacon and it was delicious okay here's a question at the very end they call on gordon and the the feds like we want him to meet us in this hunting lodge outside of the city (laughs) yeah we're definitely not going to shoot you that hunting lodge that was wayne manor right i wasn't just getting a crazy vibe here that looked like wayne manor to me i mean they don't ever say it but it had this wayne manor sort of vibe to it to me and since Bruce has clearly disappeared, 
it would sort of make sense that someone had reclaimed the manor. Because, you know, you're a hunting lodge and you picture, you know, a small, you know, cabin-y kind of thing. No, this is opulent. Yeah, we get... We got the big windows, the big staircase, fireplace. I thought it was Wayne Manor. Makes sense to me. I honestly, I think I would have rather that this were six issues. Because I know I said it could be shorter, it could be longer. And while it could be, could definitely be shorter to take out some of that stuff, I would have liked more room. I would have liked more time to explore some of the concepts, some of those characters, to make the the flesh killer virus less of a MacGuffin and more of something that felt threatening. I like the end. I like how Batman turns the tables on our villains there. And if you're going to do a story where you're arguing either Batman the man is immortal or Batman the concept is immortal, why not... Just set your miniseries like across that 100 year spectrum. Like you could have probably done 12 issues and had a couple of little different story arcs going different eras, different Jim Gordons. Yeah, I, I agree with you again. Like this either needed to be bigger in the scope of what this story was telling, or you tell other stories set in this universe. Like this, I think this project somehow needed something more. And I think you could have gone in different directions as to what that more was, but I won't say this is unsatisfying, but it's, it's a little whelming, a little whelming. And you get at the end, Torah, the Oracle, having this sort of crisis of faith that is wrapped up in a page and a half because we're at the end of the book and we needed to get there. Yeah, we got to get out of here. And her and Robin talking about how, you know, Batman will never give up the cowl and he'll never become Batman. It's like, why are we bringing this in now at the end of this this book? This could have been something seeded throughout. And we don't even know who this Robin is. At some point you find out he's an orphan because Dr. Chris, the, the coroner who is Jim's friend, love interest, whatever, says something of Bruce about, I let you take in this orphan. You don't know why, Goss, uh, Chris, Chris, I assume Christine, she's called Chris. Chris Goss is the coroner slash Bruce's medical person. And that's just an echo of Leslie Tompkins. That's all that is. Oh yeah. She's definitely got more Leslie to her than Alfred, but they're, they're still patching him up. I mean, and her daughter is the computer savant. And at some point, Tori, she actually says something when talking about the computer networks. She said, you know, it, it's not something. Opaque. It's like an oracle. You can get it's like, OK, I uh, see what you did there. And, you know, Gordon is the last good cop, but he has a partner who seems to be trustworthy, who we see for like three panels. I wanted there to be more. And I wanted more with Gordon's history as the former warden of Arkham. Oh my God. How have we gotten this deep into this and not talked about that? That was, that was a bizarre thing to introduce and then just like leave alone. Like, wow. I won't spoil that little bit if you haven't read this book, but there's a great bit of Gordon's backstory as Warden of Arkham that takes forever to get out there. And then it's just like, and then 
Okay, it's sort of his motivation, but I would have liked to know more of that, more about Gordon's history. Yeah, and like the transfer from in I Am Batman from Gotham City to New York, I don't think that's how these things work. I don't think you can go from warden of mental institution to police sergeant. That, uh, that doesn't seem like that works. The only thing I can kind of give them the pass there is that he was basically being pushed through by the secret police, this mysterious government agency. So at that point, it is what it is. We had to get there, so we got there. I said that issue three is basically mostly just a Batman fighting his way through this building, but boy, howdy, it's a gorgeous Batman fighting his way through this building. I love the thing with the teeth. Oh, yeah. When Batman is going into close combat, he puts in these like fake fangs to just to give him an extra little bit of put the fear of God into the people he's fighting. And I think it's a great touch. And that says to me, it's not the Bruce Wayne that we know, right? I'm not saying that Bruce Wayne wouldn't do that, but that just doesn't seem like his style. This seems like somebody else's approach. Somebody else had a neat idea to bring to the Batman mythos. I will also say after both Digital Justice and Batman Beyond, both of which are high science fiction with the tech and stuff. Here, this Batman is much more grounded in his use of technology. He doesn't have a ton of really high-end sci-fi gadgets. He's mostly wearing a normal costume and using stuff that was readily available in 06, except for a few, you know little bits of you know personal technology but this is not as high sci-fi as the other two books that we've dealt with tonight and you can kind of understand why this is only set 30 years into the future you know give or take a couple of years if we want to imagine this being 2038 or 2039 whenever it is supposed to be so this is not going to be some hologram, neon-soaked, Blade Runner kind of world. This is not going to be the Matrix, but with actual computer stuff. This is relatively grounded. Like there are some hints of you know, future tech when they're talking about the screen caps and the, I don't know, they, they, they seem like handheld projections, maybe. The lenses they put in the dog's eyes to record. Yeah, the basically USB drives as teeth miniaturized which doesn't seem all that fancy now think about how much technology has changed in the 20 years since the year 2002 uh abby and i have been watching the first season of 24 uh i don't have to imagine it's (laughs) it's very apparent it's it's shocking when you really think about when the first iphone was introduced it's it's shocking how techno how the technological genie that was released, you know, in the past 15 years. Jack Bauer running around with a Palm Pilot. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. um, I mean, do you have anything else in general on this one? That I do not. So it means it's time. But Batman, you're 100 on the big board. I think this is probably the 
best story of the night. Yeah. My opening bid, somewhere in the realm of 75, Catwoman Win in Rome, a story Mm. where the art is beautiful. The story, though, not essential either to reading or to the uh, long Halloween universe. I think it's as much as I love the Tim Sale art, you know, I love the Tim Sale art. I think this story is while there's, I wanted more out of it. I don't feel like there were as many holes as there were in when in Rome. So I would put it above when in Rome. I'm thinking a little bit higher. I'm thinking maybe around 73. I think the first Batman is probably better just for, you know, what it says, what it does. It's that cool Thomas Wayne, Lou Moxon story. And below that is the first me, the origin of how Batman and Superman became allies. Below that is the Robin annual by Chuck Dixon that really just expands the eight page introduction of Robin and adds in a thing where, oh, the ringmaster was part of the, the conspiracy. It's not as pretty as this. The art is not as good as this. And it doesn't do much for the Robin mythos. So I would put it in between uh, Mightiest Team in the World and Robin Year One and make it our new 73. Sounds good to me. All right, so Batman Year 100, moving in there. Nothing cracks the top half tonight. No, I mean, this one came pretty close. And, you know, the top half is getting, it's getting strong up there. It's getting tight. There's a lot of really good material up there. And you're going to have to put in a real good show to make it into that top half. And we'll see what might happen next week. Because next week, we return to three stories that we have visited in earlier episodes as we go to the next arcs of Grant Morrison's run on Batman, No Man's Land, and Injustice, Gods Among Us. Where maybe the art will be better. We can dream. (laughs) We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. June, come on. Joshua Wheel. Abigail Hartbaum. Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. Mrs. I, I will add that in for future readings of this list. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Kyle Still, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and a Comics XF where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three Cs, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>